Section 22 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade, Chapter 1, The Black Death, Part 2. In the interval between the capture of Calais and this attempt to recover it, a visitation occurred which turned all the gay prosperity of England into mourning, and brought the French nation to the very brink of ruin. The outbreak of the plague in 1348, or the Black Death, as it was then called, has been left comparatively in the background by contemporary historians, but it is undoubtedly the central fact of the reign of Edward III and of the 14th century, and in the opinion of some writers, the most important economic fact in modern history. Among its consequences may be reckoned, as will be seen further on, an immense advance in the social condition of the working classes owing to the scarcity of labor and consequent increase in its value as a commodity, the substitution of what we should call tenant farming for landlord occupation, and a strike of fifty years' duration, which culminated in the rebellion of Wat Tyler in the following reign, and though then cruelly and treacherously put down, resulted at last in the emancipation of the English peasantry. The local origin of the plague is mysterious, and it has therefore perhaps been traced to Cathay, the land of mystery. But it is an ascertained fact that all the most devastating epidemics which have visited Europe have had their cradle in the Far East. Tidings of the plague's ravages in Central Asia had reached England as far back as the year 1333, but the Western peoples thought little of it as long as it was talked of only as one of the many scourges of imperfectly known and half-barbarous nations. Constantinople was then as now the great frontier city between European civilization and the Far East, and through it flowed one of the three principal tides of Oriental traffic. Thither in 1347 the destroyer came, along with the caravans laden with Asiatic produce, and followed the westward course of commerce by easy stages along the shores and islands of the Mediterranean, sometimes pausing, sometimes doubling back, but always gaining ground, till it reached the utmost northwestern boundary of Europe, not sparing Iceland, and even leaping over to Greenland, where it probably extirpated the European colony, and returning by Norway and Sweden through Russia in 1351. In Provence, the chief cities were almost depopulated, at Avignon, where Pope Clement VI held the most extravagant and dissolute court in Europe, three-fourths of the people died. The Pope shut himself up a close prisoner in his palace fortress and kept huge fires burning night and day. In Cyprus, Sicily, and Florence, the plague was felt with extraordinary severity. In Florence only, it would seem, that some efforts, though ineffectual, were made by the authorities to check the spread of the disease, among the victims of which was Petrarch's Laura. During its ravages in that city, a number of ladies and gentlemen withdrew together from all communication with the outer world, diverting themselves with music and dancing and other indoor entertainments, eating and drinking of the best, 
and never listening to or thinking about anything which might check their good spirits or disturb their serenity. Stories by which they are supposed to have amused each other have been preserved or invented in the Decameron of Boccaccio, the effect of whose gay and festive pictures is heightened by the contrast with the sober background on which they are drawn. The Black Death, which made the tour of Europe in 1349-51, to is undoubtedly the same disease as the plague, now or till quite lately, endemic on the shores of the Levant and in Egypt, having been, as it were, domesticated there by the lazy, filthy, and fatalistic habits of the people. Its specific causes are as much unknown as its original seat. The opinion of the time and some modern authorities agree in connecting its appearance with contemporary physical phenomena of a very remarkable kind. But it would seem as if these phenomena must have been of too limited and local a character to account for a pestilence which spread over a whole continent. Parching droughts, as it is said, were succeeded by convulsions of the earth and crackings of its surface, from which a fetid and poisonous vapor was projected into the atmosphere, the corruption of which was afterwards increased by malarious exhalations from swamps caused by incessant deluges of rain. To the panic-struck imagination of the people, the Black Death seemed to be advancing to their destruction in the palpable form of a thick, stinking mist. That an alteration in the constitution of the air was a predisposing cause of the disease would seem probable from the fact that affections of the lungs and throat were among the earliest and most characteristic symptoms. But the immediate causes of an attack of the plague were limited apparently to contract with an inhaling of the breath of a plague-stricken person, and there seems good reason to believe that a stringent application of the much-abused institution of quarantine would have effectually prevented its introduction into uninfected districts. The Black Death is specifically described as a disease in which the blood is poisoned and the system seeks to relieve itself by suppuration of the glands, and in which the tissues becoming disorganized, the blood is infiltrated into them and dark blotches appear in the skin. In some rare and frightful cases of seizure, the victim fell down and died without premonitory symptoms. But in the majority of instances, the attack began with shiverings and bristling of the hair, succeeded by burning internal fever with a cold skin, and the rapid formation of boils, first in the axillae and the groin, and afterwards in the internal organs. The appearance of these boils was the most characteristic of all the symptoms of the Black Death, but the advance of dissolution was often so rapid as to outstrip these forerunners, which were indeed due to a strong effort of nature to expel the matter of the disease from the blood. The epidemic at Athens, described by Thucydides and by Lucretius after him, is wanting in some of the invariable notes of the true plague, such as the appearance of the boils and the liability to a second attack. There is, in fact, some reason to suspect that what those writers describe was no more than a violent outbreak of smallpox. Not smallpox, however, as we know it now, but with many of the symptoms of scarlet fever. The tendency which Thucydides ascribes to the disease at Athens to extinguish and absorb into itself 
ordinary and casual disorders is common to all great and devastating epidemics. His description of the moral effects of the pestilence of his day tallies in a very remarkable manner with the accounts which have been handed down to us of the plague of the 14th century. In both we read of the same recklessness, suspicion, cowardice, selfishness, and superstition engendered by the fear of death. The Jews on the continent, for that race had been expelled from England, were accused, as the Peloponnesians of old had been, of poisoning the wells, and numbers of them were massacred in consequence. The terror of the plague was everywhere inviting death. Men's vital powers were so depressed by anticipation that they were already half dead before they were attacked. The throat parched, the pulse quickened by nervous anxiety, were taken for the fatal symptoms of seizure. And next to the fear of death was that of previous desertion. Men and women feared to look in each other's faces, lest they should be betrayed by the muddy glistening of the eye, were detected in feeling with feverish finger for the little hard kernel no bigger than a pea, which moved with the touch under the skin of the armpit. The sure precursor, as it was thought, of doom inevitable, irremediable, inexorable, and irrespective of persons, ages, or conditions of life. To imaginations morbid with terror, pestilence indeed seemed to lurk in everything, in every morsel eaten, in every rag that fluttered in the wind. But who would be so foolhardy or irrational as to throw good life after bad by nursing a dying friend, when black death was in the breathing of his last sigh or the farewell pressure of his hand? So the nearest and dearest ties were dissolved, the cause of kindred and humanity neglected, and the sick were left to die and then be carted to the grave by hirelings. Numbers were driven by an unreasoning terror away from human habitations and perished miserably in the solitude of the fields. Among the most remarkable signs of the times was an outbreak of fanaticism which exhibited itself in the revival of the order of the flagellants, who first appeared in Hungary, but sent a colony into England when the plague broke out in that country. Their mission was, as they gave it out, to expiate in their own persons the national sins which had called down the visible vengeance of God, and with that object, for thirty-three days, the number of the years of our Saviour's life on earth, they every morning stripped their bodies to the waist and publicly scourged their shoulders with knotted and weighted cords till the blood ran down and marked the place of their penance by a red-clotted spot in the dust of the street. They then assembled, clad in sackcloth from the loins to the feet, with a red cross before and behind on their caps, and marched in slow procession through the towns chanting a penitential hymn, and frequently prostrating themselves on the ground with their hands extended in the shape of the cross, while the master flogged their naked backs and shoulders as they lay. The flatulence received but a cold welcome in practical England, but in Germany especially, the people were driven half-mad by this and other religious excitements. In Strasbourg, where the plague carried off 16,000 persons, its horrors were aggravated by the papal interdict, which the pitiless church did not even then remove, 
though a remonstrance was addressed to the Pope, praying that the poor innocent people should not be left to die, with all the agony of an unabsolved conscience, and without the last consolations of the gospel. In this country, however, by far the most memorable results of the Black Death were its social and economical effects. It made its appearance in Dorsetshire in the month of August of the fatal year 1348, but it was three months before it had reached London. Knighton, who lived at the time, says that many villages and hamlets were desolated, without a house being let in them, all those who dwelt in them being dead. The country places which the plague attacked were soon silenced, for the pestilence did not even spare the brute creation, and the carcasses of sheep, horses, and oxen lay putrefying in the fields, untouched by dogs or birds of prey. But in London the streets and public places were, for a time at least, all alive and brisk with funerals, alive with death first single beers and then cartloads of corpses carried along to the graveyards. No time was to be lost, for there would soon be too few left living to bury the dead. Any attempt to estimate the whole population of London before the Black Death would be no better than a guess. But when the poll tax was levied thirty years after, the census gave only 35,000 inhabitants. Now Stowe tells us that he had himself seen an inscription on a stone cross standing in the graveyard of the Carthusian monks, formerly the Spittlecroft, outside West Smithfield Bars, stating that 50,000 bodies of the dead were buried therein and in the adjoining crypt. But it was not till the London graveyards were already full that Sir Walter Manny purchased the Spittlecroft from the master and brethren of St. Bartholomew's Spittle to bury the dead of the plague. The population of Norwich was reduced to the verge of extinction. Nothing can be more arbitrary or unsafe than the attempt to get at the truth of history by winnowing recorded facts with the sieve of probability, and making allowance for some exaggerations, we may accept the substantial truth of the statement of a contemporary record preserved in the Norwich Guildhall, that 57,374 persons besides religious and beggars, died in that city of the plague. It is difficult to believe that the Norwich of the 14th century, though undoubtedly the second town in England and the chief seat of its most important industry, could have contained a population largely in excess of the above number. At Yarmouth, 7,000 died out of 10,000. In Bristol, the living were scarce able to bury the dead, and the grass grew several inches high in Broad Street and High Street. The upper classes suffered as severely as the poor. In the Abbey of Croxton in Lincolnshire, all died of the plague except the abbot and prior. Parliaments could not meet. No courts of justice were opened. The Princess Joan of England, while on her way to meet her affianced husband, the heir of the Kingdom of Castile, was struck down by it at Bordeaux. The Scotch were for many months exempt, and, by the foul death of the English, became a popular oath north of the Tweed. They even assembled an army of marauders to take advantage of the helpless condition of their neighbors below the border, when suddenly the Black Death appeared in their camp in the forest of Selkirk and smote down five thousand men before they could disband their army, the scattered remains of which, returning homewards, 
carried the pestilence with them into the remotest parts of Scotland. The western coasts of England, where now swarm the gigantic hives of our most important industries, were then thinly populated, and the southwestern districts, Cornwall, Devon, and parts of Somersetshire, were almost without inhabitants. The great abbey of Glastonbury stood on an island, the famous Isle of Avalon, in the midst of an impassable swamp, and the few villages which existed were built on insular or peninsular eminences. The population of England and Wales in the early part of the 14th century hardly, if at all, outnumbered that of London of today. Out of this total, it is said on contemporary authority, and the statement is confirmed by modern research, no less than one half perished by the Black Death in 1348 and 1349. The immediate consequence was an enormous increase in the value of labor and a corresponding depreciation of the value of land. In the winter which followed the plague, flocks and herds wandered about the fields and corn without any that could drive them. Landlords excused their tenants' rent for one, two, or three years, lest they should desert their holdings and leave them uncultivated on their owners' hands. End of section 22